Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. This is the podcast for ISOs and agents that want to grow their portfolio and make more money, right, Patty? Yes, indeed. Awesome. Well, today we're talking to somebody that's been very successful in the industry. Very successful, and now he's uh, uh, branching out into cryptocurrency, which is a very interesting topic. It is. Cryptocurrency acceptance. I know I learned a few things about this really interesting topic that's only going to get more interesting as it goes along. It, it's, a, it's a, again, a very fluid uh, area, but uh, definitely some opportunities there. You know, and I got to be honest, I think my favorite part of the whole episode was actually towards the end of the interview when John shared with us some really insightful things about kind of mistakes he's made and also things he's done right in building really two mega companies, mega companies. and selling them off. Yes. I mean, he's been very, very successful, and I was so pleased that we, he was willing to share. Some- he was very transparent. Very. Yeah, and that was that was awesome. So, and of course, we finished it out with our questions from the field. So, I think we had a good episode lined up today. So, let's get started. This is the Insiders Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by GreenSheet.com, a premier resource for the electronic payments industry. The GreenSheet has been on the beat since 1983, always focused on boosting the feet on the street in our evolving sphere. You know, we've received a few questions uh, here, James, about cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. Right. So uh, last month I set out to do a little bit of research on the topic. And I'd like to share some of what I learned, much of which is also detailed in a recent uh, lead story on the green sheet. Okay. But, um, you know, cryptocurrencies have been a hot topic among investors, even as the value of crypto- cryptocurrencies have plummeted in recent months. After reaching a high water mark in excess of $17,000, the value of a single Bitcoin had fallen to nearly 11000 by mid-September. And mm-hmm. I believe James and I were just looking it up, and it's like 6600 at this yep. point. Now, several experts I've talked to said this is just a correction. Right. It's a very big correction. It's always a correction. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's hard to see how the value is ever going to reach that high point again, in my mind. But, hmm. you know, these... These problems don't seem to have dampened interest. Um, I was surprised, for example, when a recent search for a new nail salon uncovered one accepting Bitcoin. Mm, Crazy. Now, I admit, in my interviews with executives (coughs) at companies supporting cryptocurrency acceptance, none offered up nail salons as uh, likely. (laughs) Right. But apparently there are some. Yeah. You know, cryptocurrencies are based on blockchain or distributed ledger technology which is essentially an open online spreadsheet. Blockchain boasts transactional transparency as every transaction is verified, recorded, and stored. And once it's recorded, it can't be altered. Uh, There are several brands of cryptocurrency in use today. The most popular are Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ethereum, Litecoin, and Ripple. As the first to be introduced in the cryptocurrency with the highest market value, most experts point to Bitcoin as the gold standard. Right. Now, the disruptive nature of blockchain generally, and cryptocurrencies in particular, has not been lost on regulators. The SEC has taken the position that cryptocurrencies traded on cryptocurrency exchanges should be treated as securities. Also, several states have enacted laws and regulations regarding cryptocurrencies. In New York, regulators have authorized the licensing of cryptocurrency firms uh, that are held to the same standards as banks and other financial firms, including strict capitalization, Mm -hmm. know your customer, anti-fraud, and cyber um, security routines. 
Which, which, by the way, has been uh, infuriating to the Bitcoin community. Oh, gosh, because, you know, they, they <laughs> look at it as this is our way to unbank. Right. 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 I it's mean, like this is this is their anonymity. Right. And it's like all the regulations are like, yeah, you can keep doing all that. You just, you know, just no anonymity. No anonymity. Well, that's all it is. Right. But, <laughs> I mean, of course, and you can see their point, you know, the regulators' oh, point of view as well. So. Sure. Now, several other states impose licensing requirements, including uh, Connecticut, New Mexico, North Carolina, Oregon, and Pennsylvania. Several others have exempted these firms from regulation, including Illinois, Kansas, and Missouri. In one state, Hawaii has determined that these businesses violate state money transmitter laws. And, of course, not to be left out, California has passed legislation this summer directing the state to study cryptocurrencies and come up with a regulatory game plan. So, you know, there's a... There's a lot going on there from the there regulators trying to get their right. arms around this. Meanwhile, you have the the federal government is uh, is still trying to figure out what it is. Right. So they'll and, yeah. You know, in that, ten in ten years, they'll know all the work that's being done by the state legislatures will be uh, overturned in seven or eight years when the federal government realizes what it is. Either that, or they're going to take one of those state laws and use right. that as the well, exactly. model. Right. Sure. So there are today only a handful of companies that process crypto payments uh, for merchants. And fewer still that work with acquirers, ISOs, and agents. One of the, those that does is Alliant Payment Systems, which is headquartered in Fort, Fort Lauderdale. Um, Eric Brown, Alliant CEO, told me the firm has about 30 MLSs selling cryptocurrency acceptance to merchants. And the company is boarding about five to seven new merchants a week hmm. for cryptocurrency payments. Um, he also expect, expressed optimism that Alliant, which has built a strong book of business in high, with high-risk merchants, sure, yeah, um, is soon going to ramp up those numbers. Okay. Hmm. Now, nail salons aside, uh, interest in <laughs> cryptocurrency seems strongest among e-commerce and other card-not-present environments. Sure. Um, uh, Brown told me that Alliant has developed a direct cryptocurrency plug-in for two of the largest e-commerce platforms – WordPress and WooCommerce, mm -hmm. and that it can create custom APIs for integrating with other platforms. Sure. Plus, the company has developed a crypto payment button uh, for the Point Smart POS device. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Um, he also said that uh, he told me that um, Alliant has seen a lot of interest from high-end auto dealers. Wow. Yeah. And travel-related businesses. He said travel businesses are really... I would think so because I would think there you're kind of dealing with people that maybe you know they it's so expensive. And it's so expensive to move your money around from country to country. Right. Whereas crypto is, doesn't it's free to move it around. Exactly. Yeah. So at three point five percent plus ten cents per transaction, the fees for Alliance cryptocurrency processing undercut those charged uh, most high risk clients hmm. uh, for credit and debit. And like, I wonder what it costs them. I mean, it, there's no interchange. Yeah, so basically, what, margin or? well, that's part of its margin, and part of it is that they have to take the risk that oh, of course, the, the currency, currency fluctuation, fluctuation, yeah, oh, wow. So they have to build all these models to yeah. you know, second guess what the fluctuation. I think I'd want to charge seven percent, <laughs> right, right. So, uh, so net deposits get to uh, net payments get deposited to a merchant account on the next business day. Nice. Uh, merchants also pay a monthly fee of about ten dollars, which beats most uh, monthly fees for high-risk businesses. Oh yeah. Um, and as with credit card acquiring, the ISO or agent gets a buy rate, which they can mark up. 
Sure. Unlike credit card transactions, however, there's no risk of chargebacks for merchants accepting cryptocurrencies, hmm. and there's no reserve requirements. Yeah, this would be great for high risk. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Huh. And that's where he sees the, you know, the biggest opportunities. Yeah. And several people I talked to said the same thing. Hmm. Uh, to protect against market volatility, processors lock in the crypto-to-dollar exchange rate at the point of payment, typically for no longer than 15 minutes. So think of it kind of as like the way online auctions or event ticket mm -hmm. purchases go. Um, now, Brown said to, told me that he sees cryptocurrency acceptance following an adoption curve that mirrors that of e-commerce. Now, you know, in the early days of online uh, commerce, a lot of the transactions involved high-risk activities like adult entertainment and gambling, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. But it wasn't long before Amazon was born, and soon after that, mainstream retailers started following with their own e-commerce plays. Hmm. Uh, today, e-commerce is a market uh, to be reckoned with. I mean, online uh, sales just in the U.S. Are, uh, are expected to top $250 billion this year. Hmm. Um, and Forrester Research expects uh, e-commerce to account for 17% of all U.S. retail sales by 2022. Yeah. See, the thing to me, I, I, you know, I would definitely challenge that assumption, and and the reason I would is because, to me, e-commerce provided a clear and understandable advantage to the consumer. Mm -hmm. It's convenient. Right. I mean, right now, I love buying stuff on Amazon. Oh, that's so the Amazon my, app, I just swipe over, done. Yeah, yeah. Now, cryptocurrency, they could come up with the smoothest app experience that they want to pay with cryptocurrency, but why is it so much measurably better than Visa or MasterCard? You know, again, to me, it's always going to be the, to me, it's a niche item that's for people who don't want the government to know who they are, or they don't want the kind of the tracking mm -hmm. or again, high risk type thing. But to me, as, as a person who could care less about any of the, that stuff, um, you know, I, I just don't see why, even if it was, if it was just as convenient for me to pay with Bitcoin as it was for me to pay with my MasterCard, mm -hmm. why would I pay with Bitcoin? There's not a massive like reason for me to do that. I think it, you have to be a certain type of person. You well, know? that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So it's a segment. Yeah. Whereas, like, you don't have to be a certain type of person to use Visa or MasterCard. Right. But, I mean, I have friends who are, you know, they're not anarchists or libertarians right. or anything, but they love trying new things. Well, sure. You always have your early adopters, yep. just mm -hmm. like with Apple Pay. Yeah. You know, I look at yeah, cryptocurrency to me and Apple Pay are very similar because you look at it, that's the curve I see is like Apple Pay, where it's mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. now in even Apple Pay, I can see more, I can see much more of an advantage to the consumer to have everything centralized on their phone. Mm -hmm. that I can't even with cryptocurrency. And so I just don't know. I And it's funny. I have a lot of friends in crypto. I just, I've never seen it just because to me, I'm always like, who cares? Yeah. You know, and again, I don't, you know, there's, of course, there's the three to 5% of the population that either anarchist or whatever, or people who just like trying new things. new things. But again, that's not that you don't, you know, the early adopters, there has to be some kind of measurable, significant advantage like e-commerce was of, you know, telling all their friends, this is so much more convenient. You should try shopping on Amazon. Right. What are they saying about cryptocurrency? This is so much more what? Yeah. It's just so I don't much get more it. cool. I guess. Yeah. Anyway. Well, I mean, you know, right now there's probably about a dozen uh, big name companies that are accepting cryptocurrency. Okay. Um, the travel websites Expedia and Cheap Air. Okay. Overstock.com. Mm hmm. The gift card platform Gift. Microsoft. Really? Microsoft yeah, does. Microsoft does. Mm, that's interesting. Shopify. Okay. 
Dish Network, you know, the, uh, <laughs> the, the uh, okay. what is it, not the satellite yeah, provider, right? right, right. Yeah. Um, online, and the online food delivery service Takeaway. Okay. Um, in addition, and this is the thing I thought was interesting, Intuit supports cryptocurrency payments as part of its QuickBooks online electronic invoice really? service. Now, I have to admit, I haven't looked that closely at my QuickBooks lately, but yeah. that would be interesting. Yeah. So, you know, clearly cryptocurrency hasn't taken the payment space by storm. It's right. probably not going to anytime, anytime soon. Right. But it's worth keeping an eye on this burgeoning market. And if you're calling on or thinking about calling on businesses like high-end auto dealers and e-commerce sites, yeah, it's probably worth investigating cryptocurrencies further and... You know, consider adding that uh, cryptocurrency acceptance to your merchant sales toolkit. Awesome. I have a feeling we'll get some good comments on this uh, this portion because I know a lot of people are pretty passionate about in yes. our in our industry. I feel right. like oh, a lot I of people are really are. passionate about cryptocurrency. Yeah, I think they are. So I'll enjoy if you if you make a comment on our uh, SoundCloud, I'll enjoy arguing with you there. Okay. So <laughs> thanks, Patty. That was great. Sure thing. Thank you. Okay, so we're here today with John Beebe. He's founder of Secure Crypto Payments. And he's also CEO of Small Business Lending Group and president of Celestial Payments and a founding member of the Green Sheet Advisory Board. Oh, wow. Nice. Which is how he, John and I first uh, – I think we were two of the founding members, John. Uh, that is correct, I believe. And uh, John's past accomplishments include uh, founder, chairman, and CEO of Global eTelecom, which is now Sage EFT, right? Yes, it's uh, well. It was just recently acquired um, again. Oh, so okay. It's, uh, <laughs> it's hard to keep track. Was in the in the roll up that they did. Okay. Yes, it was. It was Sage EFT for a while. A lot of people know the company as uh, Getty. Right, so. right, right. Well, just for everybody who you know, folks out there who don't know you, John, if you could give us a little bit of background on how you got into merchant services, and I know you've been in the field a long time, um, but you know, if you could kind of segue into into how it got into how you got to your current place. Sure, Patty, and uh, good morning to you and and James officially, and or good afternoon wherever you're at. And aloha to you. All right. Yeah, well, thank you, aloha and uh, mahalo and all that other sort of good stuff. Uh, I got into uh, merchant services. Oh my goodness! Uh, <laughs> interest in it, I would say, uh, took place in the mid '90s. Uh huh. Um, I was uh, involved in a company that was uh, collecting um, payments um, from people that were. We did subprime. Um, uh, financing at the time. This is back before subprime had the, right. the dirty negative connotations right. that it got after 2008. Um, but uh, we were trying to find a way to increase our uh, merchant, uh, our, our, our collections mm-hmm. and our payments from the customers in a way. And I remember signing up for some life insurance and they had me sign a form that authorized an automatic debit out of our account and uh, I realized that was the ACH network and uh, then kind of really got interested in maybe some applications for electronic payments and that was really came out of a need to kind of help uh, our cash flow mm-hmm. uh, with some of the things we were doing and I realized and did some research and found out at the time that any electronic presentment uh, against um, a checking account had basically um, first shot at uh, uh, funds capture right. uh, before precedence of paper checks. So it kind of seemed like, especially with the um, 
a level of uh, credit that we were dealing with at a particular time and people were juggling bills. It seemed like if we could get first in line at the particular time to collect the payment, uh, it would seem to benefit us greatly. And then from there later on, um, I thought if that need worked well for us, then there might be a possibility of being able to do something like that for merchants on a mass scale. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, I, I founded uh, what's known as uh, Getty then, and um, it's just a one-person startup with myself. And uh, as they say, the, the rest is history. We took off from there. And that, we founded Getty in uh, 1998. Uh-huh. Um, in the Florida Panhandle, so that's been twenty years ago now. So wow. I date myself. You like yeah. you like beach towns, I see. Uh, Florida, Kauai. <laughs> we do. We've spent some time in Colorado as well in Denver. We we love Hawaii here. We love both the mountains and we also love the ocean. Mm-hmm. So Hawaii kind of gives you that. But uh, yes, we are very much a, a water person. Well, well, tell me, John. You know. Um, Obviously, you have a lot of experience in this in this business, and you've seen you've seen a lot happen over the over your tenure. Mm-hmm. What do you say? What would you say are some of the biggest challenges and opportunities facing ISOs and MLSs today? And and okay. do you think they're greater or less pressing than they were, say, fifteen or twenty years ago? That's an excellent question, Patty. Um, what we're looking at, really, as opposed to fifteen or twenty years ago, I think uh, one of the first things that pops up. Uh, that at least is apparent for me that a, a lot of people are probably just used to dealing with now is while technology technology has changed dramatically even in just the last few years. Mm-hmm. So whereas a, a simple for the you know MLS salesperson or the, the the feet on the street, the average person used to walk in, let's say you know 99, 2000, 2001, 2003, maybe 2005 before even the advent of the iPhone. Um, in 2007, they would walk in and your, your standard choices of POS equipment were fairly simple. I mean, they were either going to um, plug in either to a dial-up or you would have some sort of internet connectivity then, but it would either be usually a uh, standalone um, credit card terminals. Mm-hmm. Uh, there wasn't APIs. There wasn't a lot of heavy programming interface. So a, a typical retail merchant location would have been a fairly easy thing to sell and install. Now, because of the level of technology, um, a lot of merchants are kind of spoiled. They're going to want some sort of a touchscreen device, maybe a hybrid mobile device, a mm-hmm. device that they could potentially move around. They want to have a fixed uh perhaps register, but then they also want to be able to have use a, a an iPad or an iPhone or an Android support um, with an API and they're gonna want it to tie into their um, you know their their POS system or other cash management system or accounting software in general. And so that didn't used to be the case a few years ago. So for the average MLS person, uh, you have to increase in your knowledge of technology and also kind of have to have a fair lay of the land uh, on what it is. And there's usually going to be some sort of uh, integration that's going to be required uh, for the merchant that wasn't there even just a few years ago. Now, while this um, presents a challenge, it also presents a tremendous sales opportunity for the uh, uh, merchant level salespeople who are 
are taking the time to educate themselves and also become uh, subject matter expert experts uh, in this area, and then they can serve more as uh, and do a needs analysis for the particular uh, merchant that they're um, proposing uh, their services to, and the ones that are knowledgeable and have the cutting edge services and a wide variety are usually able to find themselves at the forefront of getting able to get a merchant to. Uh, um, switch over or potentially sign with them. Okay. So the technology has really been a game changer and uh, it works both ways. So. Awesome. So, yeah, that is very interesting. So, you know, I know talking of technology, I know you've been involved with providing support for cryptocurrency acceptance. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about some of the challenges and opportunities um, involved there? And yes. this might be, you know, a, 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 I know that you have been doing some some work in the ATM arena this may be um, something that you want to touch on as well gotcha absolutely well in the crypto space we're, we're dealing with kind of some of the same things um, kind of you've got you, you know Bitcoin came out and then it took off in rapid popularity and then you had uh, almost everyone and their dog was trying to create their own cryptocurrency. Right. So, right. Yeah. you know, the, the, the key with cryptocurrencies, the first is you've got to have uh, both consumer acceptance and then also merchant acceptance. It doesn't do you any good to have a cryptocurrency that you cannot spend or a, a digital currency that you cannot convert into some sort of fiat currency and or um, payment for goods and services. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's just kind of like a, a pretty thing to have in the tech world. It doesn't do you any good. Our, our job and one of the things that we're focused on is trying to take a select few solid cryptocurrencies and enable both consumer acceptance and then also ease of merchant acceptance um, uh, for the merchants to be able to accept those as a payment uh, for form of goods and services uh, for the particular business. Uh, there's a, a few solutions that are out there, uh, but typically right now it's just kind of a hodgepodge of things that are coming together. Mm-hmm. And I think going forward, um, you're going to see a lot more regulation of the crypto space. A lot of the cryptocurrencies yeah. that are out there now are going to basically just kind of disappear Mm-hmm. and dry up and go away because there's really not support for them in the market or for merchants to accept them or for consumers to accept them. And uh, a lot of them don't have the proper registrations that you really need uh, to operate here in the U.S. with the FinCEN uh, and mm-hmm. other other things. So you've got to be able to provide proper uh, Bank Secrecy Act, anti-money laundering controls, and you've got to do a lot of other things to, to be in compliant with uh, the U.S. government and its other factions to ensure that you're not allowing any bad actors into the mix here. And a lot of those safeguards have been built in over the years in both the um, e-check processing and credit card processing world that are going to need to be adopted uh, for the cryptocurrency space going forward. John, Um, I was just curious, just out of curiosity, like with all the volatility with Bitcoin over the last, you know, uh, three to six months, um, have you seen a decline in interest from merchants, uh, you know, accepting Bitcoin because of that volatility? Or has that really not been a major factor as far as their their interest level? Well, it's given them pause because um, I'm not to tune our own horn. We have a solution that enables them to lock in the value at that particular time 
of sale of the transaction. So, sure. so they're um, not really subject to that volatility if they're, if they're not, the but it, it has given, it has given them pause and they want to make sure that we're going to be able to cash them out at that particular time and place, because there have been some dramatic swings, even within a few minutes, um, on, on Bitcoin. So it, it does, they're interested in it. Um, they're just wanting to kind of let the dust settle down a little bit and let some of the things shake out. And they're really looking for someone to come in with a stable solution that provides them the answers. That's not making them have to jump through a bunch of different hoops that they're not familiar with. And that's, that's kind of what we focused on trying to do. Could you, do you think you could, if you wouldn't mind diving a little bit deeper, could you explain, I, I know what you're talking about, but I know some of our listeners that aren't familiar with Bitcoin acceptance, explain a little bit more in detail of that risk of like accepting a payment and then it's not what you thought you accepted sure. and kind of how sure. your system deals with that. Sure. Well, one of the things that, that you've got to keep in mind is, is, is volatility. So at any given time during the day, if a customer walks in and they hand you their Visa or their MasterCard at that particular time and they know that the transaction is going to cost $100, well, you know if you ring in uh, that transaction, you know you're going to get $100 when you batch out at the end of the day and then it's going to be ACH into your account either within, say, 24 to 72 hours, depending on your bank. Right. Well, the challenge with uh, Bitcoin Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies is, is at any given particular time, if a merchant in a normal environment were to take a Bitcoin as a form of payment and the volatility that it has, let's say they could take and accept uh, Bitcoin for payment for $300 worth of goods um, and the Bitcoin at the time of the transaction was valued at, uh, let's say, $6,000. And then at the end of the day, when they go to batch out, um, let's say that Bitcoin is now $5,200. It's an $800 swing. Mm-hmm. Um, they've now taken basically a risk of volatility of that transaction in being able to get it out from the time that they can convert Bitcoin either into uh, U.S. dollars or, say, euros or some other form of currency right. and then get it deposited into their account that they can use. Um, what we do for them at that particular time is we enable that merchant and we give them peace of mind to where we lock in the value of the Bitcoin at that particular time, no, ma- no matter what Bitcoin or another cryptocurrency does, say, throughout the rest of that day from when they go to batch out. So if they book their transaction at $6,000, and that was the value of the Bitcoin, and they got paid $300, and Bitcoin dropped at the end of the day, we're still paying them out um, at the price that was locked in. That that right. enables the merchant to get the full value and the full money for their services. Sure, and I think that's such a, that's such an important point. I mean, it seems like a minor thing in a way, but you know, maybe somebody doesn't get the details of it. But I mean, without that, you know, it's pretty scary to accept Bitcoin, especially if you're selling you know thousand dollar items. You know, it's uh, it can be a little yes. bit a little bit scary. You could take a, a, and there have been merchants that have been burned with that. You have consumers that have been burned and people that have invested that have been burned. Right. Um, And when I say burned, I mean, Bitcoin has usually um, gone back up within a certain trading range now, as with some of the others. So it's stable. It's it's gotten a little more stable. But I, I was never one of the proponents of a you know, a hundred thousand or two million dollar Bitcoin by the end of this year. I, I, I didn't see that. Right. But, you know, that doesn't mean that it doesn't have uh, some more appreciation to go. But I think um, the market's going to have to shake out going forward in the future for it uh, to return to some of the highs that it, it did. Are there any particular verticals where cryptocurrencies are particularly well suited to? Well, you know, we found that um, merchants that are in 
uh, potential environments that have with uh, higher chargeback, potential higher chargebacks, uh-huh. um, they, they have uh, a, a large um, interest in trying to accept uh, cryptocurrencies. Some of those, though, um, industries, unfortunately, have higher chargebacks due to just the inherent risk in the that particular um, industry. So you sure. still have to do all of your appropriate risk analysis and, and underwriting controls on those. But uh, you also have a, a lot of online businesses that are um, wanting to be able to accept um, Bitcoin. And a lot of merchants are also asking us for what we call a, a hybrid payout, where they want to take a percentage of their um, Bitcoin that they get or other cryptocurrency that they they accept at the point of sale at the time of that purchase. And they say they want 75% of it in U.S. dollars and they want to keep another 25%. We're starting to get a lot of uh, um, inquiries from different merchants and also ISOs if if we can enable some of that support uh, for merchants. So you can do a chargeback on a Bitcoin transaction? You cannot do a chargeback on a Bitcoin That's transaction. That's what I thought. Okay, um, I want to make sure I understand. And I apologize if I wasn't clear. Uh, typically, it's industries where you would have chargebacks that would exceed or get into a level that would cause concern on a traditional merchant. So, so those merchants I, would be well just, suited for Bitcoin because yeah. there's no chargebacks. A lot of them are. Got yes. it. Right, okay. Right. Got it. Okay. Cool. Um, well, this has been really enlightening. I'm wondering, uh, John, if you'd be so kind. Well, you know, we have a lot of folks out there who might be newbies and, uh, you know, just getting started in the business. You know, others that are looking to ramp up their game. How, what would, advice would you offer uh, them on, in terms of how to make a successful go of selling merchant services? First thing, you have to be tenacious. Um, I, I know you you hear this a lot. You have to be tenacious. This it is a very very competitive environment, um, and the hardest competition you're really going to have is is with yourself and staying motivated. You're going to have to get used to um, you know hearing a lot of rejection uh, mm-hmm. typically, but if you persevere and you stick with it, it's with anything else. The rewards in this industry um, are 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 very lucrative. Um, you can build a nice uh, portfolio and residual base, uh, but you have to be you have to be persistent, and you have to have products and services that are both easy to use, um, easy to spell out billing wise for your merchants, mm-hmm. and also enable uh, support in a, a wide variety of uh, equipment because you never know what particular service or piece of equipment or functionality is going to need at any particular merchant that you walk in. Every single one of them has different needs. And the more tools you have in your toolbox to be able to offer that merchant when you're there in front of them, the better chance you have of closing the sale. Mm, that's that's really good, John. Let me let me see. If we take it up a level in in terms of the executives that are that are listening in. And I know there's a lot of them that you know they're executives at ISOs and they're listening. Two questions I have for you about that, uh, sure. kind of put you on the spot a little bit. But you know you've built up some successful companies. What are some mistakes that you see? ISO owners, uh, entrepreneurs that are that are building these these companies in the payments industry. What are some mistakes that they're making that you feel like are potentially holding them back? Some lessons you learned along the way that allowed you to to scale to the, get to the point where you could you know potentially sell a, a business or build that kind of value. Wow, that's uh, <laughs> that's a good question. That's an excellent question. Yeah, I'll be happy to answer it. What I can do is I can tell you from um, experience that I went through. 
yeah. um, when we ended up, uh, and this this has been, you know, we've sold a couple different companies now. Right. Um, one of the key things is you want to make sure that you have all of your members of your team, of your management team, and anybody that's um, involved, you want to be all on the same page. And that may not sound like um, it's really that important, especially if, you know, one of the other uh, members of the executive management or shareholders um how do I say this? Well, it, it, so, it sounds easy, it. but it's not, is it? <laughs> it sounds easy. And then this sounds kind of cliche. It's in a simple answer. <laughs> right, right. But really, communication is going to be key. And especially once once you've all struggled together and you've built the company together, typically what happens as you start getting success and more and more merchants, uh, you're onboarding more and more merchants each month and you get your momentum going, the key thing is going to be to be, to keep everybody happy with that growth and making sure that everybody's compensated fairly and that there's transparency in addition. And the other thing that you're going to want to do, especially with your top salespeople, your ISO support people, your partner relations people, they're going to want to be compensated fairly well. Um, And so you've got to make sure that you have, um, you've well thought it out to make sure that everybody can be compensated well now and going forward into the future and that everybody's contribution to what you're building is, is also valued and the other thing that you want to do is make sure that you have good solid partners that you've um that you've done that you're engaged when business with you have good solid contracts in place as well too um that typically success can break up uh more um sterling management teams and companies than (laughs) than failure failure can Yeah. yeah Yeah. You know, what's one point you make that I think is really interesting. You talked earlier about how tenacious you have to be because it's, it's such a competitive industry. And I agree that it's so competitive as far as with merchants. But, you know, wouldn't you agree that it's almost more competitive when it comes to profitable salespeople and solid executives? You know, it's like, you know, you almost have to watch out more there. Like you mentioned of yes. communication and compensation, because if you have a topic, you know, recruiter that's able to build a team that does a hundred deals a month or an agent that's doing 15, 20 deals a month, you better believe they could go shop around and find a deal somewhere. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. You have to constantly keep and make sure that they're happy and you have to constantly make sure that you're taking care of their needs. And if your pencil isn't, isn't sharpened enough for them, at you know per se on on revenue splits and profit wise you guarantee that they're going to be hit probably from 20 or 30 other companies <laughs> that are going to say hey i can beat that deal just give me a chance to beat that deal and i'll increase your you know your residual base right. or mm-hmm. your portfolio your payout factor or we'll we'll do whatever it takes to earn your business um i you know i've, I've done the same thing Sure. So, <laughs> so let me you know. let me ask you one more question along these lines because in my consulting practice, uh, a lot of times I get brought in to kind of talk about okay, this this ISO is looking at an exit strategy in X amount of years, and so you know they're they're thinking about that. And I'm just curious your perspective in the deals that you've done that have been successful, where you built a company and then ended up selling it. At what point you know did you, was there this moment where you're kind of like okay, it's time to to build towards a sale? Are you always building towards exit strategy or is it kind of this aha moment of, Oh, okay, this, this deal just happened to come along. It looks good. And, and you know, we're going to sell out, like talk to me a little bit about your kind of mental framework of making this decision and moving your team towards an exit strategy. 
That's it. Well, when you're building a team, um, you can either build with the, the, the view of we're going to all go and cash out, and then that way you increase, you, you let everybody know that's what the plan is from up front, or you know you work to build and build a company, and you want to hold on to it. And then typically right. that's what our thought process was, especially with Getty um, back in the day. But I'm, if I can be completely candid with you, we had a very broad and diverse management team bench, and the more success that we had and the more that we grew, some of the members of our management team weren't able and didn't see the same uh, vision or future um, from when we were boarding 2,000 merchants a month as to when we were boarding 300 merchants a month. We were a completely different company. Right. And so at that point, um, you know, I didn't have any intention of selling, but at that point um, we had – I think I'd gotten 13 offers, unsolicited offers uh, that particular year. And finally, I just threw out a number to tell somebody so that they would go away and they decided to come back and and accept it. But (laughs) one of the reasons why, I'll have to tell you, one of the reasons why we sold and then one of the decisions we made to sold and I regret it is because uh, we had different members of the team that as we grew and we had rapid success, um, as we grew, they just didn't quite continue to fit with that level and pace of the growth of the company that we had. And that's, you know, these were, these were people that had been with us uh, since the beginning. And, you know, we, you want to make sure that uh, they're shareholders and that they're taken care of, but it's just a difference of a viewpoint that you have. That's part of human nature. So is it more of two? It sounds like you're saying got to be careful with the team members you have that just because somebody was the right person and the right fit at 300 mids a month or 200 mids a month, when you get to a thousand, you know, it sounds like maybe that person isn't, isn't the right fit and you want to potentially replace that person, make sure they're taken care of, but you you have to look towards your vision, not just making everybody happy. Uh, Absolutely. That's one of the, that's one of the key things. And Hmm. you know, it's, it's, and, and also money and success and other things, uh, change people they do. Um, yeah. and different different people respond in different ways and i'm you know as candid as i can be um, you know not everybody knows the story so this is kind of breaking <laughs> many years later <laughs> sure. this is breaking here with you all but uh yeah that's unfortunately one of the reasons that led uh to us selling and i i was a lot younger then and i look at that now as probably one of my biggest failures uh, of of my uh, management career and executive career is not being able to hold the team together and then also not being able to find a way uh, to make sure that everybody was taken care of and instead of selling. But, hmm. um, you know, uh, we all learn and we grow. And, yeah, uh, we absolutely. And I've, I've learned a lot from that over the years in the process, and I think it's made me a better executive for it today. Yeah, absolutely. And plus, whenever you can fail forward, that's a good thing, right? As long as it's absolutely. Uh, you know, you're, absolutely. you're failing at something, but still it's profitable. You're, you know, come out on top side, even though you learn the lessons along the way. But, uh, wow, very insightful. Thanks so much for answering those extra questions there, John. I just wanted to get your insights from your sure. background and, uh, that was, that was very helpful. Yeah. This has been well, a you asked us, you asked a very full threat question. So I decided not to give you a powder puff answer. So I, <laughs> well, I appreciate that respect. Awesome. We appreciate that. So John, if anybody wants to get a hold of you, how would be the, what would be the best way to, to reach out to you? Uh, they can reach me through uh, various means. You can uh, call uh, toll-free, which is uh, 1-833-2-PAYMENT. That's the number two. And then payment, which is 272-9636. Or they can email me at john, J-O-H-N, at securecryptopayments.com. Uh, you can also go to the um, 
uh, Green Sheet Advisory Board um, online and pull me up there. John Beebe, last name B-E-E-B-E, and uh, pull up my contact information uh, and everything also through the uh, uh, Green Sheets Advisory Board information online. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much. This has been so enlightening. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Thanks, John. I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, uh, mahalo, and thank you all. Have a great day. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the OptiBlue program. Put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field, and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit instantquotetool.com today or email support at instantquotetool.com to learn more. All right, our first question today comes from Robert. He asks, should you focus on one niche like restaurants, for example, or just use the shotgun approach? So um, it's really interesting. I actually had a conversation about this with a rep uh, a few days ago. Uh-huh. Um, and what I told him was this. I said, look, when you're first starting out, and this is just totally my opinion. It worked well for me. When you're first starting out, I like the shotgun approach. And the main reason is because of a couple things. First of all, um, it's so much easier to take effort, to take action. And, and you know, mm-hmm. you don't have to make many, very many decisions. Okay. Get up, get in your car, drive to a business and walk into it. Right. And then go to another one. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Get up, get your phone out, get your list and start calling it. Right. Right. So I like that. I also like it because I think you're going to find your niche. You know, I, I found, wow, I really like selling pizza shops. So initially I have shotgun approach. Right. But, you know, within maybe three months or so, I was like, you know what? I really like selling pizza shops. I'm good at this. And I like I liked that there was a lot of them. You know, one owner would have four shops, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I did a, a concentrated approach for maybe six weeks or so for pizza shops. And I had marketing materials made up. But I couldn't have made those marketing materials or anything if I hadn't gone the shotgun approach and learned kind of how to sell it. And learned which ones were the were yeah. your best prospects or that you felt most comfortable selling exactly. to. Exactly. Right. So, you know, my advice would be start with the shotgun approach, build your database, you know, from that. Um, and then, you know, from there, maybe you're going to find something that you realize, wow, I could really focus on this. I would just one thing I would mm-hmm. add, and I know we've we've talked to a few people, um, yeah. you know, over the over the last couple months, that came from specific industries. Of course, right? They, they they didn't need to discover anything; they already knew. They already knew. Like you know, um, somebody we spoke to recently had been a restaurateur. I remember. Right. Sure. Right. And I mean, it was obvious he knew right. restaurants in and out. Right. So that's where you're going to go first. So if you come, you know, I would just suggest, I mean, I think the shotgun approach Mm -hmm. is great, but if you come to this business from another industry where you know, crossover, then why not go with what you know? And I will say one other thought on that that is interesting too, you know, keep in mind, you know, the shotgun approach really isn't the shotgun approach. The the shotgun approach is small businesses that have a standalone terminal Mm -hmm. and that is limiting. Right. right. Um, and, and that's OK. So, you know, but when you're out there, what's going to happen, too, is you're you're also going to notice some trends in terms of who do you want to sell, but you can't because you don't know enough yet. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then that'll help you to be like, oh, wow. You know, if I really learned, you know, Aloha 
I could probably sell pizza or I could sell uh, restaurants, you know? What, right. So, right. you know, you're going to kind of see where those gaps are in the, on the technology side of things. Yeah, sure. And, 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 and again, that kind of gets into the whole consultative thing, you know? Right. Yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. So our next question here, uh, this is, comes from Mike, uh, cash discount pricing for industries that have tips Anything and everything would be appreciated. So let me <laughs> let me frame this. This is a really weird uh, uh, question, a really weird topic, I should say. Right. I actually have an entire video I did on my YouTube channel about this. It's uh-huh. it's definitely my least understood video I've ever done. Um, when I got done shooting it, the employee I had shooting it said, "Can we do that again? Because I didn't understand anything you just said." Mm. So you have to understand, tips are confusing, and yeah. with cash discounting. And right. so let me let me just talk about this for just a second. So let me just start by explaining how to fix the problem. And then maybe I'll try to dive dive a little deeper, maybe. So how to fix the problem is really this. The problem is the consumer has to be able to see what the service fee is on the receipt. Mm -hmm. However, they don't add the tip until after they see the receipt. Right. So you can't really add a service fee to a tip. Right. Because you're doing a tip adjust after they've already seen the service fee, right? Sure. So the way to do this is actually pretty simple. Um, You know, you first need to understand that cash discounting at its core is just flat rate pricing, with a service fee. Mm-hmm. And the service fee is offsetting the flat rate pricing. Mm-hmm. Well, what you have to understand is with a restaurant, you're never going to be able to, with the dust tips, you're not going to be able to directly offset it if you're doing daily discount to collect the service fee. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because if you do a 4% service fee, you would normally offer a 3.84% cash discount. Right. But if you're offering a 4% service fee and you're doing flat rate 4% pricing, then you're charging 4% on the tip, mm-hmm. but you're not collecting 4% on the tip. Right. So Yeah. So the way you gotta do it is you gotta do the flat rate a little lower than the service fee. Ah, okay. Okay. I see what you're saying. So you right. gotta look at the restaurant and say, you know, what kind of tips? So if they're doing fifteen percent tips, right, then we take it and say, Okay, so normally on a dollar they're actually gonna cut on a, a dollar, dollar they're 15. actually gonna dollar fifteen. So what would four percent of, you know, a dollar fifteen be and divide that by a dollar? Mm-hmm. You know, now we have it. So you got to be careful. You, you have to look at it and say you got to collect enough revenue to offset the 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 you know what they're losing on the tips. So you have to have a pretty good feel too for what your tip mix is as well. I yes, would think, right? you do. Now there is another way to solve the problem that, in my opinion, makes way more sense. But you know, this is just me. So the other way that makes a lot more sense is to do escrow billing, and I've talked about it before. Mm-hmm. And there are some billing companies now that do this. The escrow billing is so much simpler because all you do is, you know, the processor in that case actually knows what the service fee is. Mm-hmm. Right now, the problem we have is most of the processors are, are collecting from a daily discount, but they don't actually know what the what the, the amount was. So, like, they're doing a daily discount of 4%, mm-hmm. but they don't actually know that the service fees collected were 4%. Right. In the case of the tips, they weren't. Sure. It was 3.2% of the daily volume or whatever, mm-hmm. but they're still collecting 4%, you know what I mean, to offset. So the easier way to do it is to do uh, escrow where the idea is the processor actually grabs the service fee, holds that money in escrow, uh-huh. and at the end of the month, they just say, we're going to pay all your processing fees and the profit is whatever's left over. That would be, seem to be a much simpler process. It is a simpler process. And then the statement's simpler. So, you know, without getting into too much of a specific, you know, uh, recommendation of whatever, there are billing systems that do escrow pricing. And so that, that does solve the problem. But if you want another solution, you know, it's really pretty simple, which is you got to figure out kind of what the tip mix is mm-hmm. and then just lower the, um, you know, lower the, the pricing. Keep your service fee at whatever price you're going to have it at, but you got to lower the, the pricing a little bit below that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's complicated, that, that, right? Yeah, very complicated. It sort of goes along with my theory. I've always, I'm one of those people that that tips in cash. Right. 
because it's just so well, yeah, much and so easier. Then, so it's not even just about the it's not even just about the tip mix. It's about it's where are the tips many, coming from. Yeah, exactly. Because I know that I'm not the only person that tips in cash, right? Yep. Um, so yeah, you have to have a real feel, I would think, for for the particular client. Sure. Uh, really interesting question here. Um, so this question is. Uh, I'll try to summarize. Austin says, how much is a statement worth, basically? So what we're talking about here is we're talking about marketing. Right. We're in the age of marketing, right? You can mm -hmm. market. So um, part of why you would do marketing is to get a statement. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, how much is a statement worth? In other words, um, we have to look at the value of an account. So let's say an average account is worth you know, 400 up front, plus it's another 300 in buyout you know, value or something. So okay. we look at the value of an account as $700. Okay. Well, if you know that it takes you, uh, if you get seven statements from a marketing campaign, whether that's telemarketers or Facebook or whatever, mm -hmm. if you know you're going to get seven statements from a marketing campaign and convert one out of seven into a sale, then every statement is worth $100. Right. Now, if it's worth $100 there, then that means you're break even, so you're not actually making money. So you might say it's worth 50 because I want to get a return on investment of X. Um, and so, you know, however you can get, however much you can get below 100, that's what they call arbitrage, where you're just printing money. Right. And that's what you want with a good marketing campaign. Um, but as a general rule, you can usually close one out of three statements. Hmm. So that's kind of your rule of thumb. So statements are actually worth more than $100 most of sure, the time, right. uh, significantly more actually. And so getting a statement is usually pretty valuable. Um, you know, I'll have to take a moment because I think I've, this is the first time I've ever done this on the show, but I have to do a shameless plug for one second because, you know, I would say you probably want to put our instant quote tool in the mix before you ask for the statement mm -hmm. because it's going to be a lot easier to say, let me give you a free quote than it is going to be to say, give me your statement. Yes. So, you know, I would, I would recommend using that. And again, I'll, I'll just to make it not a shameless plug. There are other solutions out there that would offer something like that, but you know, find something where you can offer them at least an effective rate quote or something of, Hey, we usually do this this rate or something and offer to give them something first to get their information and mm -hmm. then say, I need the statement only so I can verify the quote that I sent you. Uh-huh. You know, so that's got to be a second step, I think. Sure. Uh, but yeah, I think to answer your question, take the, the total value of an account. What's an account worth to you? And then divide that by uh, three. Mm -hmm. And that is the value of a statement where you're not going to make any money. You're going to break even and then subtract back from that. Right. And however much you can subtract off of that, great. Usually statements, if you're working with a call center, you can usually buy statements for between $100 to $250. Okay. So just depends on, you know, the total amount. So. Yeah, and, and how valuable that perspective for potential client is. Yeah, exactly. What's right. their what's their volume? What are they going to spend with the and stuff like that? So great question though. Really yeah. interesting. Haven't had one like that before. So this has been questions for the field. Thanks everybody. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.